you don't know me, just a very quick um, background a story to put so that you, as you hear me speak, have a context to fit me into. So I was born in Durban, 1955, and uh, was raised there the first 12 years of my life. And then at the age of 12, my dad was transferred from Durban to East London. Did my high schooling in East London and then standard six at Cambridge High School, East London. There was a guy in my class, David Ganetsky, who started to talk to me about Jesus. And he's a pastor today in Quickney, um, East London. I think he's, he's retired now, recently. But um, he actually spoke to me about Jesus for quite a while because I was raised in a non-Christian home. And then I was pretty ignorant as to the Bible and Jesus. And I said to Dave at some point, you always talk about this guy, Jesus. When are you, when are you going to introduce him to me? I thought he was his friend. Uh, but it, it, it took time to seep in that Jesus was actually God come in human flesh, lived and died and rose again for us to save us. So eventually he invited me to the First Baptist Church youth meeting where Rex, Uncle Rex Matthew was preaching. It was First Baptist Church in East London. And that's when I gave my life to Christ. And about a year and a half later, after being with the Baptists, and I really enjoyed Rex Matthews' teaching, uh, another guy at school got hold of me, Tony Shelvin, and said, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. <laughs> so this, this issue of power for witness, power for, for service, power for ministry, I felt a distinct need in me for the power of God to help me to be a witness for Jesus. So I opened myself up to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He laid, he laid hands on me one Friday after school. I, I remember we went uh, from Cambridge High School to his home in Cambridge. His, his, his mom was out, his dad was at work. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not too sure why, but I sat on the coffee table in the lounge. And he laid his hands on me and began to pray for me. And he began to speak in tongues. And I was just praising the Lord in English, but I had these strange words going through my mind. And eventually he stopped me and he said, Stop praising God in English. Is God giving you any other words? And I said, Yeah, I've got these funny th things in my head here. But I had to change gear from speaking English to opening up in faith to just praise God in different languages. And the, the first word was Amma, then Abba. And I didn't realize at that time I was... 14 years old, 14 and a half, that they are the two Aramaic words for daddy and mommy. Oh. Amma and Abba. Wow. And Jesus taught us yeah. to pray, Abba, Father. Um, so I then had a wonderful experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, I had like a calling experience one morning early in my quiet time. I was reading through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah at the time, and a particular chapter just really spoke to me, so that after that, at school, whenever they ask, you know, sometimes they ask at school, you know, when you leave school, what are you going to do? You know, some guy said, oh, I want to be a doctor, engineer, pilot, and whatever. I knew, I knew that I knew, I always said, I'm just going to speak for God. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to teach the Bible, and I'm going to speak for God. And that was my sense of calling and my sense of destiny. So eventually I left school, did my army training in those days, all the white guys, compulsory service. 
up in Walters Bay and then up, up, up on the border. But then I was sent as a young Assemblies of God pastor, because I joined the Assemblies of God, um, from Belleville Assemblies of God under John Bond. I was sent from Cape Town to Rhodesia. In those days it was Rhodesia. I remember it was the 20th of January, 1975, they laid hands on me and sent me out. I got on a train and drove and went all the way up to Salisbury and became a full-time paid youth pastor. And in that first year in the Cleary Avenue Assemblies of God in Salisbury, I led the youth under the senior pastor, John Stefman. But in that year, I led a guide to the Lord from the next town, Marandellas. Those of you who know Zimbabwe is now Morandera. But he was the sheriff of the town. He used to hand out the court orders to all the people. I led him to the Lord, then his wife, and then he invited all his friends, and I traveled out. It was about three quarters of an hour's drive into his home and led his friends to the Lord, baptized them, and a church plant just happened to us. So after a year, so I went into the ministry at 20, at 21, planted my first church. <laughs> in the Godfrey Huggins School Hall in Marandellas. <laughs> and the church just grew, and the elders were ordained, and then eventually I was called back three, uh, two years later from that church to, to, to Medaridge, um, Constantia, um, in the Assemblies of God. Derek Morphew was the, the minister at the Medaridge Assemblies of God, and he went then to Fisher. And I took over from him. In those days, the Assemblies of God used to move the ministers around every three, four years. And then we built the church in Sponshamock River Road, the Assemblies of God. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, so at, at that time, when we moved, then we were in Bergfleet or, or Medaridge. And then we bought the property, built it, cash paid for. When we opened the building, we had money in the bank. That was the blessing of God. It, it, it was you know, fully built. And so I was with the Assemblies of God um, in those days, and then I was transferred. So in, in Constantia Assemblies of God, 1979, I think, I got a call from Derek Morphew, who said that there was a guy, Lonnie Frisbee, from America, wow. who, was, who was out here, and he had a Wednesday night free, what I, what I like to have him preach. And we were having... Um, in those days called cottage meetings or Bible study groups. So I quickly phoned around. It was a Tuesday and said on the wedding night would everyone come together and there were about a hundred people and, and Lonnie just shared his story then invited the Holy Spirit to come and all heaven broke. <laughs> uh, it, it was, uh, I mean we were Pentecostal and yet I hadn't seen the Spirit of God move like that. Wow. Um, it, was just, it, it was just amazing. And then, of course, I said to Lonnie, well, where do you come from and who's your pastor? And he said, there's a guy, John Wimber, back in, in Southern California. So through Lonnie, I heard about John in 1980. I then went on a trip to Southern California for three weeks, spent time there. And I was so um, mocked. It was a defining moment wow. uh, for me, where, whereby I just knew that I knew I had to resigned from the Assemblies of God and tried to uh, ask John Wimber if I could come and work with him in a kind of internship. So that happened in 1982. I, I ended with the Assemblies of God in 1981. Went to work with Wimber for eight months in 1982 as a kind of an intern research assistant and then came out in November 1982 with a big team from the Assemblies of, uh, from the Vineyard. There were about 70 young people 
who came out and for two weeks in Johannesburg, they just literally roamed the streets of Johannesburg laying hands on anything that moved. <laughs> and if it didn't move, they laid hands on it to get it to move. Because it was, by implication, it was dead. So, we, they, in two weeks, we baptized 65 brand new believers from off the streets. Wow. People that were born again, and the church was started largely with spanking brand new baptized born again babies. Um, and Costa Mitchell, who was also an Assemblies of God pastor, resigned just before I got back, joined up with us, and Dave Owen and myself. So that's how I got involved with the vineyard. But I was only in the Johannesburg vineyard, it was in those days Park View, for just about uh, two years because I started to get involved in Soweto. I went through a, a kind of a repentance from our own conditioning as a white person born on the side of privilege and power in apartheid South Africa. And uh, through a number of incidences, I'd become aware of my white, my whiteness, my white racial conditioning. Um, because my own belief is anyone who was born under apartheid in South Africa, whether you acknowledge it or not, we are racist. And we need healing and freedom of a whole new mindset and a different heart. Because of the conditioning of our history and our context of privilege and pain, of power and oppression. And the, we still live with a lot of unresolved hurts and a lot of unresolved racist attitudes that's still boiling like a cauldron. And we know present day South Africa. So that, that involvement. Uh, I, I started to get involved in Soweto from the end of 1983 wow. and it became full-time. Basically Costa and Dave Owen in Johannesburg released me to be, become involved in Soweto full-time. So I'd never been into Soweto um, as a white South African. And uh, it, it, what really happened is Costa was running a Bible school, Christ for Africa Institute in Johannesburg in 1982 and 83. And the student body, there were about 25 white students and there were about, I think, three or four black students. And again, even in those days, it was unusual to have black students with white students, a mixed student body. And it was the middle of 1980, it was about August 1983, and P.W. Butter had set a referendum in October 1983 um, for the yes-no vote of the tricameral parliament to the white electorate to approve his reform program to bring coloreds and Indians into a tricameral parliament with whites and basically leave the blacks out. I don't know if you guys like me who came out of Noah's Ark will remember. <laughs> you, you remember the referendum, the yes, no vote. Uh, uh, so the, the referendum. So I was teaching a module for one week in that Bible school. I did modules now and again at Costa's um, invitation on the ethics of the kingdom. So in the class, I was advocating a no vote to the white electorate mm -hmm. and saying we must vote against Peter B. Water and vote against the apartheid and his reform is no reform. How can you bring coloreds and Indians into a tricameral parliament and leave blacks out? This is no reform at all. And so we one young black guy from Soweto. His name was Moketi Mpeti. And Moketi is, he was from um, 
Lesotho, but he was born and raised in Soweto, but he was Isi Soto. And his name, Moketi, means feast. And he was a young Amatrabani, a, a, a young comrade. And he raised his hand when I was teaching and advocating this no vote. And he, he challenged me. In those days, I was called Bushy Fenter mm. because at high, high school, I always had long hair and I was always uh, perennially, regularly in trouble with the prefects. <laughs> where I had to write lines because my hair was over my ears. And so it, when my hair thick. <laughs> I, I've come, I just had my haircut two days ago. I've come down shorn and shaven. <laughs> Caleb says I look sharp. So. <clears throat> but I was called Bushy. So he said, Bushy, tell me. And he really challenged me publicly in the class. And again, for a young black guy, and he was young, he was probably about 22 years old, um, to stand up and to challenge the lecturer, a white lecturer, was again really... Um, unheard of in those days. But he basically said, are you trying to patronize us blacks in the eyes of your white compatriots by asking them to vote no? Are you another typical white English liberal who speaks one thing but does another thing? Or are you for real? And I mean, he called me out. And I stood there and I said, I said, Moketi, I am for real. I'm not just trying to patronize you by saying what I'm saying to my white compatriots here. And he said, then if you are for real, have you ever been into Soweto? Hmm. And I said, no, I've never been in, um, in, um, into Soweto. He said, then when these lectures are finished at one o'clock, take me home to my place and I'll show you where I live. And I'll introduce you to all my young, conscientized, angry friends. <laughs> so, Johannesburg in those days had 1.5 million white people. Soweto had over 3 million black people. And you know the history of Johannesburg and Soweto. You've heard of Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. So, The Tale of Two Cities in South Africa, Johannesburg and Soweto, is Johannesburg was founded on the gold rush of 1886 when they found gold. In the, in, in the hills, in the Witwatersrand. And people came from all around to dig out the gold. But very quickly, Cecil Rhodes and others gained control, and the black people became the labor pool to dig out gold for the white economy and our white lifestyle. So Soweto is southwestern townships, which became the labor pool for our white economy to, to serve us. So their mothers would travel from Soweto into our white homes in the suburbs to help clean our houses and change the diapers on our children and raise our babies. While the white men were at work and the white women were at the club having a nice lifestyle. I don't know if you guys recall those days. And so there is this black city of anger and pain and rebellion See ya, see ya, hey, hey, one settler, one bull. <laughs> and there is the white city built on gold <laughs> that symbolizes white arrogance, white power, and white wealth. And the tale of two cities. And so I had to come to terms in my own heart just with being born on the side of privilege and power. Just because I was born of white parents. And I remember in... Um, 
in the vineyard in Johannesburg in 1983. I looked around because when I was with John Wimber in 1982 in California and we were talking about coming back to Joburg to do this church plant, um, I kept saying to John, I said, John, if we come back and plant another typical white suburban charismatic church, we'll be part of the problem in South Africa and not part of the solution. And he said, why, what do you mean? And I said, no, if that church that we plant does not have black people, white people, rich people, poor people, colored people, Indian people, we will just be perpetuating the problem of apartheid. Because I kept saying to John, the church in South Africa is a copy of apartheid society. It's not a model of the kingdom of God. Apartheid has evangelized the church more than the church has evangelized apartheid. In fact, the church has been made in the image of apartheid. You had white churches, black churches, Indian churches, colored churches, rich churches, squatter camp churches, and never the twain shall meet. I don't know if you guys remember any of those days. The legacy of apartheid is still with us in that you have Kailicha, you have Guguletu, you know, the group areas act where the demographics all herded into certain places, the colored groups. And of course, things have changed demographically with upward mobility and BEE and affirmative action and blacks are moving into white, previously white areas. But the change is slow, but it's coming. In any case, just to say to you that uh, I'd never been into Soweto. And when I went in there with Moketi, it was just a whole defining moment for, for me. I got, he lived in, in Mapetla and again, I don't assume that you necessarily know Soweto, but Mapetla um, Mdeni is right towards the end, deep, deep in Soweto. And uh, I remember as you go in, the houses are so small, just the forumed house with a pondok toilet outside. So you've got a kitchen, you've got a little lounge, and then you've got two bedrooms, and with, with, with a little wash basin and the toilet is, is outside. And uh, it's on small properties whereby all the kids just played in the streets all the time. So as I drove in, and no white person, you know, went into Soweto in those days except two kinds of white people. If a white man drove in, he was part of the special branch, the apartheid police, <laughs> or he was a Catholic priest. But I didn't have a dog collar, so I wasn't a Catholic priest. So I was obviously one of the others. And so as I drove in and Moketi was sitting next to me and he just grinned. He had the darkest of darkest skins and the whitest of whitest teeth. And when he, when he smiled, I mean, just, you know, you were almost dazzled by how white his teeth were. And he said, he said, Bushy, don't worry. As long as I'm with you in the car, you'll be okay. But God help you when I'm out the car. Because everyone came to a standstill as they saw this car coming in and they saw this white man driving. And people just stopped still and you could feel the tension in the air. And then I sat down in Mama Marx's house where Moketi was staying and he invited his friends and they just started to literally interrogate me. They said, who did you vote for in the last elections? If you voted for the Nationalist Party, then we are going to chase you out of here. And I said, no, 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 no. I voted for Fancel Slubbert. <laughs> I'm a bit of a liberal. <laughs> and they said, do you support the Release Mandela campaign? If, again, um, did you go to your national service? Um, what's wrong with us skipping the border and joining Umkonto and coming back to meet you on the battlefield? I mean, it was just 
really brutal, brutal discussion. Um, and all I could say is, I mean, I was so ill-equipped. I, I, I just kept saying, but you know, we're supposed to be Christians, and I'm a pastor. This, all that you are saying has got nothing to do with the gospel or with the Bible. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's talk about home groups and healing and speaking in tongues. And they said, no, we can talk about that later. Let's talk about how you view us. What do you think of us black people? What's your view of black people? And it was like, wah, wah. And I couldn't understand this integration of, of so-called religion and politics. And I've always been taught, you never mix religion and politics. Just keep them separate. Um, because, because they're supposed to be separate. Whereas it's, it's incredibly unbiblical, that view. In any case, be that as it may, when I drove out of Soweto eventually, I just had to stop on the highway back into Joburg and just broke down and wept and wept and wept. And I just felt God say to me, where is your brother? And then the scripture of Cain and Abel came into my mind where the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? And then I, I felt, I was saying to God, well, do you expect me to be answerable for my brother? I'm not my, brother's, my black brother's keeper. And, and you of all people should know you mustn't mix religion and politics. You're getting political on me now. Um, but I really felt God say, the black Christians are your brothers. And their blood is on your hands. And go find your brother. And I'm going to hold you accountable for their blood. Go find your brother and your sister and go reconcile with them. And ask them for forgiveness. And so that started for me a journey. That was 1983, about uh, September. It started a journey where I went into Soweto regularly and brought some of my friends from Johannesburg into Soweto every week. And we started this group that just began um, evolved in 1984 to be called Joweto. Johannesburg, Soweto, Joweto. We renamed the two cities. And I wrote to Charles Dickens in heaven or hell, wherever he is, I'm not sure. And said, um, God's written a new narrative. It's not the tale of two cities. It's the tale of one city. Augustine, the city of God. God doesn't see black and white, rich and poor, Indian and colored, old and young. He sees one people reconciled, healed and united as his richly diverse, glorious people in a harmony under the headship of the King, King Jesus. Amen. And so that's Joetta. Joetta was the vision for, for repentance, reconciliation and justice to cross barriers in society where the flow of history had always been from the blacks to the white homes, from the black townships to the white uh, companies and the white economy to work basically in white-owned companies, white-owned homes, and to eke out a living to feed their children and, and to basically try to survive. Whereas it was really all a one-way street. They learned English. We never learned Isisutu or Isizulu or Kosa. Uh, we just let them learn our language. So we felt, as an act of repentance, 
we need to do a reverse flow, go from Joburg into Soweto and learn the language and locate our lives and our friends and our spending in the place of pain in order to basically seek reconciliation and restore dignity and humanity where it was profoundly and deeply broken. So that led to 12 years in Joweta. My wife and I were involved there. We, we, our children were born in the process of being in Joweta. And out of that um, group, that church planted, it, it was an inadvertent church plant. We didn't intend to plant a church, but it became about 40 to 50 white people, about 60 black people that met every Sunday. We had home groups all over Soweto where we had blacks and whites and home groups together, basically talking about um, the Bible and how to share life and tell our life stories raised on different sides of the divide in South Africa. And it was just remarkable days. It was under the state of emergency from 1985. Remember, Peter W. Boote declared a state of emergency. It was basically a police state. We had to drive through army roadblocks to get into Soweto and out of Soweto. I was interrogated by the special branch at John Foster Square twice by Captain Nanny Bates. I still remember his name. So we know a little bit of the pain of our history by trying to relocate our lives as an act of repentance on the other side of the divide in our nation. And so Joweto took 12 years of our lives, but out of it came a group of two black couples and four white couples who then said, let's not just have meetings together, but let's actually share life together. So we bought, we sold up and bought a small holding right on the edge of Soweto in Aikenhof. And we then started an intentional uh, Christian community uh, as in a common purse community. Have you guys heard of the Amish? Yes. <laughs> the Hatterites, the Brudelhofs, you know, the Mennonite uh, denomination, it's actually called in America the Mennonite Conference, has got 13 denominations under the Mennonites. And the most conservative denomination of the Mennonites is the Amish. Then the next step towards a bit of progressiveness is the Hatterites. The Hatterites at least believe in mechanization. The Amish don't. The Brudelhofs also live in mass, big communities on farms. They are more progressive than the Hutterites. They do, they're like the kibbutzim in Israel and do high-tech medical development. They send their, their sons and daughters to get PhDs in the, in the top universities in America. So there's a Brudolf outside in Pennsylvania that has got about 500 people. And it's just remarkable. These people have for centuries lived in common purse community where, where, where no one owns anything in their own personal name. They live in a common pot. So it's all owned communally by the community under the eldership. And then you draw out every month by an agreed budget of what your family needs to live. And you all work on the farm. So if you, you know, the book of Acts, chapter 2 and chapter 4, where it speaks of the early church, where it says they sold properties, they shared everything so that there was no poor among them. I don't know if you guys remember that phrase. There were no poor in the early church at a certain stage because of the shared wealth of resources. Those who had basically shared with those who didn't have. So that there was a relative equal 
sharing of a quality of life between the upper side of, of historical privilege and wealth and the lower side of being basically poor and having nothing but being empowered and lifted up within a fair range of a shared quality of life where there was integrity and dignity between the two. And so we tried to emulate that. So for 23 years, from 90, we bought a farm in 1990, we moved out there in 1991 while we were all still involved in Joetta, and my, our kids were raised there. We have two children, so I, I'm married to one wife. I try to obey Paul, as he says that elders must only be married to one wife. Um, and my wife's name is, is Gillian, as in the English G, Jilly. We have two children, Zander, um, is our firstborn. He's 30 years old. He's married to Samantha. They live in Oslo, Norway. He's working there in, a, in an institute for ecological research. He did his PhD here at UCT in ecology. Um, and our daughter, Misha, or Misha Joy, she's a clinical psychologist. She's 29. So we have two children, and my wife is Jilly. So that's really our story. 23 years living in this intentional Christian community where we own nothing in our own name. And then seven, eight, actually eight years ago now, for a number of reasons, uh, one couple wanted to go to New Zealand because their children had gone there and their grandchildren were there. Another couple wanted to go elsewhere to follow their children. And I felt it was time to plant a new church. So we actually agreed as a community to unbundle our covenant commitments most of the kids were already grown up and were moving out the house, etc. So we then moved off the farm into Joburg and I planted a church called Following Jesus. It was um, a vineyard church, uh, uh, it was basically a replant of a small struggling um, vineyard church in the northern suburbs of Joburg. So we've been there for the last um, eight years. My wife and I, and this year in February, handed the church over to a younger pastoral couple, um, Pabalo Takiso and his wife Rafilwe, um, and now they lead the church. And I felt for the last two years, actually, that I needed to be free of the responsibility of leading a local church and give myself full time to writing and to traveling and consulting with churches to make myself available to the broader church and basically to do this, to meet with leaders and couples. So my wife and I often meet with uh, pastoral couples and just sit and hear their hearts and just are friends to them, help them keep perspective, pray for them, counsel them. So since then, we've been basically, as I say, like Peter, we've been walking on water because my last salary was end of January this year. <laughs> and we're living by faith in the sense of making ourselves available basically to travel and to um, minister, teach, train, equip and, 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 work with, and, and work with leaders. So that's just a little bit of an uh, uh, overview of my life journey and, uh, in ministry. And the, our last step is that we, I was born in Durban and, I, and I've always said for years that when I hand over the local church and I'm no longer responsible for a local church, I want to go back to the coast and live at the beach. <laughs> so we are moving in January down to Belito Bay area. Okay. We, uh, we are selling our house and we are buying a house and it's all working out by God's grace. So we are going back down there and basing ourselves at a church um, in Salt Rock. But hopefully we'll have more time 
to write more, but still use it as a base to travel from. So I don't know. I intended to give a five-minute little story uh, of 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 my journey, and it's ended up. It feels like a hell of a long time I've been speaking, (laughs) and we haven't even begun to talk about spirituality. But maybe that, hopefully, is spirituality. So let me talk a little bit about authentic spirituality and just say to you, I did not know we were coming to a Salvation Army, not church, because this is not the church, the facility in which the church gathers. The Salvation Army, like the vineyard, the church are the people. This is the facility where the church gathers among other facilities and homes during the week and whatever, whatever. But walking in here, uh, sitting down immediately, three things struck me. And I don't know if you guys can pick up the three things. When you walk in the door, the, the words, as you walk in, the entrance. So, Kathy, you are one better than me. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> but what I did notice is, I didn't notice then the words that came in. Mm. It would be interesting to hear what did they say. Um, Can anyone the remember? The beauty of holiness. The? Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Yeah. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. But as I sat down here, I looked up here. And I don't know if you guys can see, to be like Jesus. The book, Doing Spirituality, and I tried to open this, but uh, my fingers are not strong enough with the sellotape. Because I wanted to actually re- read a quote from my book, Doing Spirituality. But the book, Doing Spirituality, the subtitle is The Journey of character formation toward Christ-likeness. To be like Jesus is the basic theme of the book. It really is, what does it mean? And what does it take in a lifelong journey to become more and more like Jesus? And very simply put, that is what the Bible means by our postmodern word, spirituality. The word spirituality is such a slippery word with so many different meanings. Um, So yeah, the book's actually at the bottom underneath here. I got one. All right. Thanks, Caleb. I appreciate that. So, doing spirituality and the subtitle is The Journey of Character Formation Towards Christlikeness. So the word spirituality has got so many different meanings for different people. And I, in chapter 1, I tell my autobiographical journey in the area of my relationship with God. So like in the book Doing Healing, chapter 1 is my autobiographical journey from brokenness, basically of rejection that I've suffered with all my life, towards wholeness. And Doing Reconciliation is another book, it's about our, our Joetta story. The journey from being born on the side of privilege and power to a repenting life of seeking reconciliation and justice for all in South Africa. So each book that I've written, I start off the first chapter grounded in my life experience because I do not believe in, in cut and paste or copy and paste books. I believe that anything you write must be authenticated incarnationally in a lived life. It's not the theory of theology. 
It's the integration of biblical truth in lived life. So chapter 2, I spend a whole chapter defining the word spirituality and the 10 different ways that the word spirituality is used in the world today. And so in New Age, the New Age, the eclectic New Age movement, which basically is an amalgam of all sorts of mixed beliefs, you know, to the, the big buzzword today is to be spiritual. And if you just take time to meditate, if you just appreciate the sunset, if you like look with a glazed look in your eyes and you munch on the ozone layer, then you're spiritual. Spirituality <laughs> means so many different things to different people, we need to define the word. So I trace the meaning of the word from the English, our English usage, which actually comes from the French, which then was derived from the Latin, which was then derived from the Greek. And Paul's word pneumaticos in the New Testament is the source of this. And Paul, of course, was not a Greek. He was a Jewish Pharise uh, 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 rabbi with a party of the Pharisees. So he thought as a Jewish rabbi, like Jesus, but he wrote in Greek, and he was the crossover between the Jewish Hebrew world and the Greco-Roman world to communicate the faith of Jesus, the Messianic teachings of Jesus, into the Greco-Roman world, because he wrote in Greek. So Paul was, was, was brilliant, brilliant, with the help of the Holy Spirit in the way he wrote, if you understand a bit of the Greek. So basically, the word spirituality, I take a long time to define, and then I go into the basic four spiritual traditions in the history of the church, the Christian church, and then I go into Jesus and spirituality. But of course, Jesus, in terms of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, did not use the word spirituality. The Greek word pneumatikos that Paul uses doesn't appear in the Gospels. Jesus, his biographies, the way Matthew wrote the biography of Jesus, his life story, the way, the, the, the way Mark wrote it, Luke and John wrote it, they use the word discipleship, which is the very Hebraic idea of a rabbi who draws around him students, Talmudim. So in the Hebrew, because they, they would have spoken Aramaic, which was like a, 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 a sister dialect of Hebrew. Hebrew was used as the liturgical language in the synagogue and of course the Old Testament. But the common lingua franca, especially of the northern part of Israel in the Galilee, was Aramaic. It would be similar to Zulu and Isikosa. There are, if you know Zulu, you can understand Kosa, but the pronunciations are a bit different in some words. So that's the Aramaic and, and the Hebrew. In any case, Talmudim is the Hebrew word for disciples. In a yeshiva is the Hebrew word for a learning school, a rabbinical school. So in those days you had Rabbi Shammai, who was Jesus' contemporary. Rabbi Hillel, who predated Jesus and, and Shammai, the most well-known um, Jewish rabbi that started the rabbinical movement that was already underway when Jesus was around. The party of the Pharisees, who had rabbis, the Essenes, who withdrew into the wilderness, the Qumran community. You had the Herodians, you had the Sadducees, you had the Zealots. So even in Jesus' day, there were seven primary groups with different rabbis, with different schools where they taught Torah. 
to people. And the way that the particular rabbi taught Torah was to give an answer to Israel in that day as to their hope of salvation because they lived under Roman occupation. They lived under the, under the oppression of the Romans. And so each rabbinical school taught Torah in a way that would expect the coming of Messiah for God to deliver Israel from her enemies. So then Jesus, what he does is he goes around and he calls people to follow him. And first of all with Jesus, let me just say, Jesus was 30 years old when he went to John the Baptizer. He wasn't John the Baptist. There weren't any Baptists in those days. Some people think John the Baptist started the Baptist church. But he was not the founder of the Baptist church. The Baptists only came later in the Anabaptists in the 1500s. So I call him John the Baptizer. But John the Baptizer was Jesus' older cousin. And he started preaching in the wilderness and baptizing people to prepare for the one who's coming after him, whom he believed would be the Messiah. He would bring the kingdom. And Jesus went and joined John. In Judaism, in that day, in the temple system, you would not begin any public ministry as a priest in the temple if you were Kohenite or a Levite until the age of 30. Ministry only began at the age of 30. So Jesus chose that age. And at the age of 30, left home and left Nazareth, went to John and was discipled by John in the River Jordan or, or at the River Jordan in the wilderness where he was preaching and baptizing people. At some point in his process of being discipled by John, John was his mentor. There's no doubt about it. He was baptized. He asked to be baptized by John. The Spirit of God came upon Jesus and affirmed his sonship and then he began his ministry. And so Jesus, as a 30-year-old rabbi, went around saying, Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. And no rabbi in those days used to solicit support by inviting people to join his yeshiva. That would be seen as being pretty desperate. Wow. And secondly, most rabbis were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Wow. They, you know, the, our English word elder comes from the Hebrew, which means gray, gray hair. So to be respected in Israel, you had to uh, graduate with gray hair. Uh, you had to be able to, so Jesus was a young, radical, upstart revolutionary who preached the coming of the kingdom of God, which was highly political. That message of the kingdom was highly political. If I had time to put it into its context, you will see how subversive Jesus was in his context, socio-economically and politically. And he went around saying to people, come and follow me, come and follow me. Unheard of that a rabbi would call people to follow. And then basically he said, come and follow me and I will, I will form you, I will, I will make you. So I always talk about the essential calling is to follow Jesus and be formed in community to fish the world. Because he first called fishermen to follow him up in the Galilee, where he was born and, and was raised, he said, I'll make you fishers of people. But if he met bankers, he said, I'll make you bankers for the kingdom. I'll make you, I will make you your mothers for the kingdom. I'll make you a builder for the kingdom. I'll make you a teacher for the kingdom. In other words, whatever your life occupation is, when you follow Jesus, that occupation becomes the vehicle of your kingdom vocation. 
God, because ministry is not in church, for the church, by the church, but ministry is one lived life under God. Sure. Whatever you do, you do with God, for God, by God, through God, for His, His world. Are you with me? So doing business is doing business for Jesus. Being a lecturer at UCT is being a lecturer for Jesus. Whatever your occupation is in Christ becomes your vocation. So he says, follow and be formed to fish. And as a good vineyard pastor, I have to have three points. And they all have to be alliteration. So when it says, when it says, Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. I've changed the word make. And it's actually very interesting. You know the Greek word make there. You, you guys are all aware that the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek language in 150 BC. By 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. They call the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament the 70 or the Septuagint. Have you ever heard of yes. the Septuagint? So Jesus and Paul and the first followers, certainly Paul, maybe Jesus, because there's a lot of debate among the, he, uh, the historical Jesus scholars if Jesus knew Greek, but they argue he probably did know Greek and could read it because where he was in his father's business was basically strongly, the Galilee was strongly Greek. And the, the, the language of business was Greek. The lingua franca was Aramaic, and the synagogue language was Hebrew. So Jesus probably knew all three languages. So the word make is the word that is used in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. It says, when God, when God made Adam, the first man, Adam, the Hebrew word Adam, He made him from Adama. So Adam is not a male. Adam, Adama is earth. And God formed and fashioned the shape of a human body out of the ground. And He breathed into that shape the breath of life. And He became a living being. And in Hebrew, Adam was made from Adama. Adam is an earthling. God only sexed him when He created the woman. And then He knew He was male by virtue of seeing the woman. We see ourselves accurately in the mirror of the opposite other. And I can go into a whole sermon on that one. Let me just contextualize it. I saw myself accurately for who I was as a white South African to the extent I went into Soweto and saw the opposite other. When I saw myself through the eyes of black people, I saw my real self. When we only see each other all the same, smell the same, talk the same, dress the same. We're in a little echo chamber reinforcing what we already know. Yeah. They say in marriage, opposites attract. But not for you guys. You guys are exactly the same. But opposites, opposites teach us how to love. Mm -hmm. yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, the word that is used there when the Greek when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek, God formed Adam out of Adama, the earth, and breathed into him. And then God took out of Adam and formed the woman. The word there is the same word that Jesus uses. 
follow me and I will form you. Wow. To fish people. And so formation, spiritual formation. God takes time to form us in order to be agents of change in the world. Signs of hope to bring the kingdom. So the essential call of, of Jesus the rabbi is come and follow me. Join me. And when you join Jesus and you follow him, you join his community. And you are formed in and through community into being equipped to be an agent of change, to fish this world for the kingdom. To bring change wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you breathe, wherever you have your being. And so, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John use this idea of discipleship. Paul uses the idea of spirituality. They mean exactly the same thing. And tomorrow morning, I'll start unpacking this. And we can then dialogue about it. So perhaps maybe to make a last comment, I've spoken way long enough. And maybe have a bit of, feed, have a bit of feedback and a bit of questions and answers. But just to say to you, just to define discipleship. And again, I, there's a lot that one can talk about. And, and maybe tomorrow I must talk a bit more about the Gospels before I talk about Paul. Talk about discipleship before I talk about spirituality, although it means exactly the same thing. And the whole theme is to be like Jesus. A disciple is a Bible word that has all but lost its meaning on our ears in our modern world. If you went back into the time of Jesus, it is essentially being a disciplined learner, disciple, discipline, Disciple, disciplined learner. In modern English, it's a student or a pupil or an apprentice. So, like at school, they used to say to you when you get to standard grade 11, we, we call it standard 9 in those days. Those of us who came out of Noah's Ark. So, standard 9 and then standard 10. Standard 10 was matric, so it's grade 11 and grade 12 these days. So, by grade 10, grade 11, they do vocational guidance. And they say, what do you want to become? I want to become an engineer. I want to become a doctor. I want to become a pilot. I want to become an astronaut. I want to become the next president of, of, of America and, and of South Africa. You know, the different ambitions of children. So what happens if you want to go and become someone? Become something. Someone. You go into strict training. They call it university or college. Or you learn a trade called apprenticeship. So you join. So my dad was a welder boiler maker. He went into a trade in those days. And when you, you go into trade, you sign a commitment and agreement, and you go and you work under someone who basically teaches you. So in the New Testament, to be a disciple was to commit to and join up with a teacher stroke mentor whereby you learn from in order to become like. You committed to, joined up with, to learn from, to become like. The whole pursuit is to be like Jesus. And so when this young gentleman, Caleb, who is a contradiction in terms, because he's supposed to be old and take the promised land, but he's young and he's taking the promised land, talking biblically now. 
Joshua and Caleb, the old dudes that took the promised land, but he's young. Uh, when he said, this is, the Holy Spirit's marking you. That was the Lord speaking to you. And he kept saying that again and again and again. Receive the mark. Receive the mark. I looked up. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I first saw that to be like Jesus. Then I saw that and I just thought the Lord is saying, this tonight and this weekend can be a whole new thing for you. God wants to do a new thing. He, he is calling some of you to genuine discipleship to Jesus. Possibly in a way whereby you've never really understood or practiced. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciplined learner, his pupil, someone who studies him with intensity of spirit, concentration of mind, focus of emotion, whereby your whole life pursuit is to become like Jesus. I tell you, if you just become a little bit more like Jesus, the people around you will be eternally grateful. Because you'll be easier to live with. <laughs> and I mean that with all my heart. What is your life pursuit? What is your single passion that captures your heart and that drives you in living life? Is it to become this great business person? Is it to become this famous whatever? Or is it just to become like your master? Like Jesus. Make it your life ambition and your life pursuit. And we'll talk about how. Literally how. And for some of you, God is marking you. In Isaiah's words, forget the former things. This is a defining moment. God's doing a new thing. And it's already springing up and it'll change your life this weekend. And then the third thing I saw is the open Bible there. And I don't know, these, these Salvation Army dudes are very interesting. But have you seen what they opened the Bible to? And as you guys opened the Bible to, is it them? So God bless the Salvation Army. William Booth in heaven, God bless you. But maybe he didn't open the Bible, otherwise his spook would be there. And we don't believe in spooks. But it's open to Song of Solomon. Fancy that. I don't think, and I've been in a lot of Catholic churches, Anglican churches, over many years doing ministry, and I often come into these mainline historical churches with an open Bible. I don't think, I, I can't recall ever coming into a church, because I often look at the open Bible to see, seeing it open to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And you know what the Hebrew rabbis say? So the rabbinical tradition um, started the century before Jesus with Rabbi Hillel, then Jesus ongoingly, and all the rabbinical teachings were drawn together and recorded in what is called the Talmud from 250 AD to 500 AD. So the Talmud is 13 volumes, the Palestinian Talmud in Israel, and the Jews of course have the Hebrew scriptures and then they have the rabbinical commentaries and the Midrashim, which is the Talmud and the Mishnah. In the Talmud and the Mishnah, 
the rabbis say that the Song of Solomon is the Holy of Holies of the Bible. <laughs> they say it is a love poem which is a sex manual for intimacy in marriage, in preparation for marriage, but that is the, the outward physical meaning which has its own place and authority in terms of marriage preparation and intimacy in marriage, of the celebration of the gift of human sexuality, the gift of intimacy. But it's just a mirror of the deeper inner reality of the relationship between God and Israel, of God's intense passion for Israel. There is no wall that God won't kick down. There is no sea that He won't cross. You know that song? Yeah. That where His love will chase you down. God is passionately in love with us. God is the ultimate, ultimate, true lover of the human soul, of the human person. And so, Song of Solomon, I know immediately as I sought, ah, this is the Holy of Holies. And chapter 1 is open, chapter 2 is open, and I always quote in these seminars, chapter 2 verse 4, He brought me into his banqueting house. And his banner over me is? Love. No, no. No, no, haven't you read it? His banner, his banner over me is apostle. Okay. His banner over me is prophet. His banner over me is professor. His banner over me is doctor. His banner over me is CEO. His banner over me is lecturer. His banner over me is father. You know all the titles? All the stuff we accumulate to ourselves to define us that actually are all false gods. In the vineyard, we don't believe in titles. And because my mother is German, she was born in Germany, Helga Tickler Elizabeth Schiele, who came out after the war, half of me is German, so I'm allowed to say this. This is verboten, ja? Jawohl! It sounds like another dude which we should not even name. Um, but just to say to you, uh, identity is the Mount Everest of painful confusion and desperation in this postmodern generation in which we live at the moment. The big issue in the world today is identity. Who am I? I'm not only talking about LGBTIQ and so on. There are 16 official different sexual and gender identities that are registered in, in, in modern parlance besides others that are being worked on. Just the question is, who are you really? Everyone wants to know, who am I? And I'll tell you something, we live, I'm part of a species called spiritual leaders or pastors or conference preachers. And, I, and I'm part of a species of celebrity man of God. <laughs> who call themselves by all sorts. I, I, whenever I say that phrase, it comes out that way. I can't say man of God without saying man of God. But you know something, I am deeply shamed by the use and abuse 
in the kingdom of God of spiritual leaders of God's people through titles, position, power, turf, prestige, privilege. And it's just a charismatic circus of shame and abuse. He brought me into his banqueting house and his banner over me is love. God's love identifies us. God's love defines us more than your weakness defines you. You're not a victim of your history. You're being identified by God's love to grow into it in the future. Who you are and who you are becoming in God redefines you in the image of God's love more than your whole history defines you. Be careful what you allow to define you and you take on as your meaning and identity in life. So just to say to you, to be like Jesus, God's doing a new thing and it's coming, it's springing up. He's marking you in this moment to be like Jesus. And it's all about, He brought me into His banqueting house and His banner over me is love. The book, Doing Spirituality, is essentially, I could equally have given the title, A Spirituality of Love. Because each of the gospel, the New Testament section on the theology, so I have introduction, three chapters, theology, five, six chapters, and then praxis, six chapters. But equally, I end up each chapter with love. This could have been called a spirituality of love. Jesus is the incarnation of the Father's love. Jesus is the living love of the Father for all humanity to see. Ultimately, portrayed openly, publicly, visibly for all humanity when He hung on the cross, which was the greatest moment of the incarnation of the love of God, the crucified God in Christ for human sin and pain and brokenness. And the more you follow Jesus, and the more you are spiritually formed in and through community in order to be an agent of change as a kingdom person out there in the world, the more you will become an incarnation of the love of God. The more you will learn to love as God loves. So Paul Paul writes, and I I took this, I read this when I first went into Joetta. I was reading... Uh, when I first went into Soweto, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 2, and, and, and maybe we should all quote it together because Caleb told me that all Christians here have learned the Bible by heart. So, you guys know this, eh? So, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, As God's dearly beloved children, imitate your Father. Imitate your Father. And then he explains what that means. And and Paul says, live a life of love just as Jesus loved and gave himself up as a fragrant sacrifice and offering to God. So I took as my life mission statement way back when I went into Soweto in those early days in, in the 1980s to follow Jesus and make followers of him dot dot learning to live a life of love just as Jesus loved and to give up my life as a living sacrifice. A fragrant offering to God. So the life pursuit to become like Jesus, to be authentically spiritual, to be His 
disciplined learner. To commit to, join up with, to learn from, to become like. That's an apprentice. I join up with, to work with, learn from, to become like, and even exceed my master who's teaching me. And the greatest joy of any mentor is to see their disciple excel them and go further and better and beyond them. Right? And even Jesus has that for us. If you believe in me, the works, that, the miracles I've been doing, you will also do and even if you do greater miracles than Jesus, Jesus, he cray lekker. He goes, he purrs like a cat or, or, or whatever in, in heaven. Learn to live a life of love. Just as Jesus loved. And gave himself up as a fragrant sacrifice. Is your life a fragrant sacrifice to God and God's people and God's world? Learn to live a life of love. That's at the end of the day, the beginning and the end of it all is love. He brought me into his banqueting house and his banner over me is love. Forget calling yourself pastor. Or other titles that we accumulate to ourselves. You know, if you call, I say to our people, if you ever call me pastor, I want you to know it actually is an insult. And then people can say, why? It's a sign of respect. It's cultural. It's not the culture of the kingdom. If you call me pastor, you are reducing me to one function among many other functions in my life. Besides being a pastor, I'm also a father. Right? I'm also a husband. I'm also a political being because I vote. I'm an economic being. I spend money. I'm a multi-dimensional being. Don't reduce me and define me by my job. It's actually an insult. I am way more than just this thing called pastoring people. Call me Alexander. That's why Moses, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, you know what Moses wanted to know? What is your name? Who are you? And if you're on first term name, first term names, first name terms with God, that, you know, in African culture, you would never, it's Maruti, Mfundisi, Ndate. You have to give honor and respect. Jesus turned that on its head. The Jews won't even now presume to name Yahweh as God disclosed himself to Moses on first name terms in fear of blaspheming God and, and misusing the name of God. But Jesus comes along and he calls God Abba, which was such blasphemy of presumption, of intimacy, of relationship that the Pharisees accused them of blasphemy and wanted to kill him. So just know, my name is not Alex. I don't like that. My name is not El. My name is Alexander. Under God, under God, my parents sovereignly gave me the name Alexander Ferdinand Fenter. And I've embraced that because that was who I was from conception up to this day. And you know what Alexander means? 
defender of the faith and protector of the people. Sure. And I only found that out in, in my 20s after a near-death experience. In 1993, coming back from the Montague Vineyard Pastors Conference, had an accident in the middle of the night and I shattered my hip, broke my leg and whatever, whatever. And the Lord dealt with me and said, leave the name Bushy. Because it is an identity that was given to you at high school that has this mixed connotations of semi-long-haired, radical, prophetic guy who prophesies and speaks in tongues and does wild things. Embrace who you are from conception and not from the age of 13. Embrace your real name. So that's why I really take time. And as us whiteys to learn and get our tongues around to give dignity. Moketi impeti. Amafu entlola. Edgar Mulefe. Paken. My friends in Soweto was an exercise in returning dignity and value mm. by learning names and pronouncing names and bypassing titles. Because God gives us his personal name and says, call me daddy. So, I think the Holy Spirit's got me into this last part because I said I would shut up and now I'm going to shut up. But there's a need here around this issue of identity. And maybe the Lord's caused me to emphasize this. He brought me into his banqueting house. You are defined by God's love more than anything else in your life. And let your life pursuit be to become like Jesus, an incarnation of his love. That is discipleship. That is spirituality. And tomorrow morning we can take it further. So again, Caleb, I'm in your hands in terms of time, energy and money. No, in, in, terms, of, in, in terms of time. So do we have a bit of time for one or two questions? Friday night, anything goes, he says. <laughs> so people, comments or questions? And if we run out of comments or questions, we can just have a time to wait on the Lord and do a bit of ministry and then regather tomorrow morning. So what are you hearing? What is the Lord saying? Yes, sir. So just your name, Phil. Jason. Jason. The dignity of the name. Now I'm talking to the real person, Jason. Jason, thank you for your question. Look, it was, if I had it to do it all over again, 100% we would do it all over again. Some things we would do differently because you learn in retrospect. But generally, the journey was real joy and fulfillment. We had, we had um, 11 children on the farm at different ages. We had 10 family units. By that I mean, there were three single people and, and the rest were couples and families. Um, and our kids grew up with older brothers and younger brothers and sisters. And they, they saw the other kids on the farm as extended family. And uh, it was just really a very good experience. You know, making decisions together around money discussing, debating. Every Friday night we met for community meal. We worshipped. I shared God's word. We prayed together. The men met every Monday morning early for prayer. 
the, we had we had prayer meeting early morning for those who wanted to come for the community before going to work. Some people worked in town, but whatever they earned, they put into the pot. And I was pastoring Valley Vineyard while on the farm and for a period of time, and my salary went into the pot. So yeah, we learned a lot of good things. Shared life, shared economy, making decisions in community is profoundly humbling and redemptive. Um, because the neurosis of the Western world is the idol of individualism. Um, me and my life and my decisions and my home and my bank balance and I decide what I want to do with it. As opposed to we deciding as family, but on the basis of real covenant commitment. So it was generally a good experience. But Jason, there would be some things, in retrospect, we realise maybe we could have done that better, we could have done that differently. I'm asking, I'm just wanting to know, given this where the church is going, are we heading towards some kind of communal living? Yeah. Yeah, so, look, the way the world is going, there is going to be greater and greater need for authentic community. Genuinely authentic community. And more and more people, I think, will experiment and explore communal living in different forms. So before we started in 1990, in the 1980s, I went to America three, four times and I visited a whole number of communities. Uh, Derek Prince communities, the Catholic Ann Arbor, Michigan community, the, the Sword of the Spirit, Gordon Cosby in Washington DC, the Mennonites, the Hutterites, the Amish, and learned to see where they had made mistakes, etc. But I'll tell you something, I'm getting requests. In fact, end of this month, my wife and I are going to Dundee. There's a, there's a, a community there that live in shared economy, Malusi, Mission. There's more and more hunger for it, more and more interest, because of the pressure of economic collapse and unemployment. And how do we really learn to love one another, not just spiritually, but economically? and share resources on the basis of trusting relationships where we don't use money to manipulate and control each other. Uh, so there's a lot of lessons around this. And if I get talking, it'll be in until midnight. <laughs> but in the book, Doing Reconciliation, I talk a bit about community, but it's a book that I still need to write, is Doing Trinitarian Community. Alexander, I'm Gareth. Gentle, which means gentle. Pleased to meet you, Gareth. Gentle. Gentle. That's good. Are you prophesying over yourself? I am, actually. I thought I might as well. Okay. I wanted to know, quite a question, what did you think of Sir Khaleesi raising the Rugby World Cup and what do you feel prophetically for South Africa during this time now and where do you think we're going? Yeah, Gareth, look. Um, God, in His wisdom and providence, gave us this symbolic lift through the Springboks victory. And Cheslin, um, Colby, Sia Colisi, and others are very strong Christians. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, what is uh, Peter Steph de Toy is apparently one of his, like their little unofficial chaplain. So, so um, and of course the Beast is a very strong Christian. He's at Glenridge Church in Durban. 
So, yeah, I think that it's just God's encouragement to us after 10 years of this country being raped under Zuma with deep darkness of evil that has ruled this country and oppression and despair and discouragement. And I think we must, prophetically, I think God is saying seize the moment and we must really pray for Ramaphosa that, that he has courage to lead and not pussyfoot around and to bring to trial those that have participated in corruption. We need to see prosecutions take place. We need to have the Moody Institute reverse its rating by virtue of growing confidence with international investment. So Ramaphosa is moving. He had the recent investment um, a summit um, with billions being promised now of reinvestment back in, into South Africa. So it is a moment in this country, prophetically, that God is giving us. You know, I know a guy in Johannesburg who's a, who's a really, uh, um, I must just be careful how I put this, but he's, he's very high up in high circles with government and business. And his phrases over many years, and I've known him for many years, and he's older than me now. He says, South Africa has had a way of coming right to the precipice, the cliff, and then coming back. And then regrouping with blessing, and then losing its way and going right to the precipice. And in the last minute, God intervenes and, and, and comes back. And it's happened with us in the miracle of 1994 after the Encarta Freedom Party and the ANC bloodletting through the third force that nearly brought about a civil war. Yeah. And then the miracle of the elections that were peaceful. So we've had a number of miracles. This is a moment in this country yeah. that we can capitalize on. But having said that, we also have to be careful not to spiritualize it in a wrong way into a kind of triumphalistic way because um, it's just a symbolic encouragement. Mm. It's not a spiritual intervention that will shift the psyche of our nation. The repentance of the church, publicly, nationally, will shift the psyche of this nation. Okay. This is a symbolic moment of renewed hope. That things could be better. Yes. Together is better. Yes. And thank God for Sia. For such a time as this. Thank God for Rassi. Yeah, Rassi was the one who recruited him yeah. and, and, and gave him a contract. Yeah. That's amazing. Etc. All in God's problems. But just be careful not to over-spiritualize it. Because there's a lot of debate, as you guys can see on Facebook. Those of you who are on Facebook and the EFF spokesperson and Lawsy basically um, trying to remind that there's still enormous pain and this actually doesn't mean any unity. It's just, you know, mutual backslapping yes. with no substance of reconciliation and unity. So there are massive issues still, but it's hope. Yes. And we must pray and capitalize on it. Thank you. And pray for Ramaphosa. Yeah. Really, he's God's man for this moment. Amen. Pray for Ramaphosa. Mm. Yes, sir. Um, Your name? Devet. Devet. Yeah. 
Good, David. I think I understand what you're asking. Yeah, so look, I think that the journey in this area of identity uh, has moments of kingdom breakthrough where there is the revelation of who we are in Christ. As Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may see the great power that God has placed within us. It's the power that was demonstrated in the resurrection that raised Jesus far above all principles and powers. So this revelation aspect of who I am in Christ, I'm loved, I'm chosen, I'm called, I'm redeemed, I'm God's son or God's daughter, etc. This is important for us to understand, to teach and to embrace and to affirm over ourselves so that we grow into what God says about us more than what we say about us and what others say about us or what we think others think about us that tends to define us. So it is a lifelong journey, but there are moments, I think, of breakthrough, but also moments of desperation. And when we are really desperate and broken and searching and confused in our identity, then potentially it's the moment of kingdom breakthrough for revelation of who you are as God knows you to be and sees you to be and says you to be. So that's what we must pray for. And I think churches should teach on identity a whole lot more. Not in reaction, and we'll talk maybe tomorrow more about gender identity confusion and, and sexual orientation and sexual identity, not in reaction to the growing pain out there in this area, but proactively teaching what the Bible teaches about identity. Human identity in Christ. And that's what we must embrace. And I think it will be a, a proactive answer and not a reactive uh, thing to what's going on around us. But it's a long journey. And even, I'm 64, <laughs> even at this stage, there are moments that still scratch old scars where I, I struggled from rejection right from birth. My mom actually tried to abort me, to kill me in the womb, which I only found out in my 20s. I tell the story in my book, Doing Healing. I explain what happened and how I came to understand. It helped me to understand that from conception, I was rejected. And I always wondered why I had this burning sensation in me that I always had to please or appease people out of fear of being rejected, so I had to be accepted. And I was, I was the nice boy, always saying yes and doing everything that everyone wanted just to be accepted desperately. And so even today, when those wounds are scratched, I still think, who are you? And I have to, even then, still say, Alexander, you are loved by God. No matter what the elders say, no matter what the people in the church think, you are loved by God. So it's, it's a lifelong journey. I hope that helps a bit, David. There was a hand here, and then, if you don't mind, we'll come back. Your name is? Uh, David. David. Beloved. Beloved. That's what it means. Yeah. Uh, Hebrew. Dodi. Beloved. David. Carry on. Yeah. 
just like to know, when you were on the farm, yes. did you have much retaliation from the, let's call them heathens outside? The outside people of the community? No, not really. In or, you know, in those times you had things like that? No, so it was an interracial community, which uh, it was started 1990, which was already becoming acceptable because the country was changing and uh, de Klerk had released Mandela, 1990. Right. So we didn't have negative reaction from the community around us because we were in Akinoff, just at the bottom of Soweto. Um, so yeah, no, there was no real reaction from our neighbours. Yeah. If anything, the Joweta experience of us going into Soweto under the state of emergency, no, that, that, that we had reaction. I mean, initially, some people thought that Bushy Fenter, Alexander Fenter, as a young Vineyard pastor, had lost his way and become political. And in fact, he's actually communist. Because he's, you know, he had his liefner. And he's preaching a radical gospel of sharing economically. Etc. So my sermons in those, in those days did not go down well in the vineyard in town. There was a hand there. So we'll have, yeah, we'll do you and then one more. Your name is? My name is Annelise. Annelise. Beautiful. So can you just repeat that last part? What have I learned about? So what have you learned about? Because clearly you have a mindset of I hear you. Thank you, Annalise. Um, look, over the years, um, what I've learned is that God is no respecter of persons, and even people in the most religious institutions, if they have a sincere heart, they encounter God, or God encounters them. So I... I worked a lot with the Catholics in Johannesburg in the Linden area where I'm invited to speak in a group of evangelical Catholics called the Family of God. And to me it's remarkable, some of them are deep Catholics. Even pray to the saints and pray to Mother Mary, which I think is not biblical at all. But genuinely are full with the Spirit, yeah. pray for the sick and drive out demons yeah. and encounter God. Others that are deeply disillusioned with the religious mindset of church institution, the organized structured church, and just the regular expectation of how we do church every week, with, n with no sense of breathing fresh air, of being experimental and explorative and opening up to the Spirit and let God be God. Even there, I've seen that um, people who get disillusioned and want to leave church, if they have a sincere heart, God encounters them. Mm -hmm. I, was, I went through years of reaction against doing church 
in a more kind of structured way. But I've come to just learn that God looks at the heart. And the sincerity of the heart, no matter what structure you're in, He meets you if you're hungry. And I've had to learn not to be in reaction to what I don't like. The extent to which I've been in reaction over a protected period of time, I've had less encounter with God. The more I've come to just accept and let be, the more I've encountered God. Be careful of being in reaction. The opposite to reaction is proaction, which basically means as Lord, show us and lead us, and let's be proactive. And by that I mean is do church differently. Open yourself up to God's wildest possibilities. And don't do it all the same way, all the same time. The world is changing radically around us. If church doesn't change, it will die. It will become, with great respect, full of old people. And the young people will have abandoned the church a long time ago. we really got to change. In the way we do church, we've got to change. So, but it mustn't be driven by the ideology of reaction. It must be driven proactively in the name of the Spirit of God is the Spirit of creativity, of creation, who makes all things new all the time. And so you really just say, Lord, what are you doing in this meeting? <laughs> and just mix it up. So I hope that answers or helps you a bit, Annalise. Okay, was there a last hand or we finished? You had your hand. I was just saying we put on a boil last week as a response to the Holy Spirit, so that's uh, mixing it up. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. I wish I was here, I would have received some olive oil. <laughs> Dear friends, if, if we've come to an end, Caleb, can I pray? Mm-hmm. You know what, I want to say, this gentleman over here, if I may ask your name. Yeah. Neil. Neil. <laughs> So as I was speaking, my attention was drawn to you. And also, there were one or two other folk. Your name is? Yes. Lesejo. 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 Am I pronouncing it correctly? Lesejo. Yeah, there there were two or three people that as I was speaking, my attention was drawn to you. And I do believe God was speaking to you at certain points in what he was saying through me. You and I just want to encourage you take seriously what you felt God was saying to you because God is busy with you, and it's not just only you, it's obviously us here because God's brought us here. But I just want to encourage some of you. So, Lord, you know Litsejo, you know Neil, you know each person here, and I pray, Holy Spirit, go deep. Devet, I bless you, my brother. Amen. I bless you with the love of the Father. In the name of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, go deep. Touch people's hearts and lives here. Heal through the outpoured love of God. Heal the wounds. Heal the issues of inadequacy. Issues of inferiority. Issues of rejection. Issues of identity. Come and heal. Come and restore. I bless your people. In the name of Jesus. Jesse, I bless you with the baptism of the Father's love. Receive the love of the Father, Jesse. Mm. 
Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord. God has such intense feelings for you, Jesse. God has got such intense passion and compassion for you. God is jealous for you. He wants your devotion and your love. Come, Holy Spirit, minister to Jesse. Luke, I bless you. Jenny, I bless you. Let the Spirit of God flow through you. In the name of Jesus. Luke, I just see a disciplined learner. You're a disciple. I bless your apprenticeship to Jesus. I bless what God's doing right now in your life, Luke. God is forming you to become more like His Son. God has predestined you, Luke, to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus of Nazareth. I bless you, Luke. Come, Lord. Just minister to your people. Thank you, Father. (coughs) Praise you. So it's already... Quarter past nine. I don't know what the time limits are, but if we waited, the flood would open up more and more. I want to be sensitive to what expectations are. So, I mean, people in the back row are under the power. If you have to go, you're welcome to slip out, but let's wait a bit longer on the Lord. God is doing stuff. More Lord, let your power come. More Lord, let it flow. And at least let it come in the name of Jesus. We pray for a baptism of joy, a baptism of love. We lift off the heaviness and we speak the lightness, the incredible lightness of God's being into your soul. In the name of Jesus, we bless you. Jenny, God's going to heal something in you. I speak healing. I just see healing coming to you. In the name of Jesus. I don't know what this is about. I don't know how long it's been. But I speak healing is coming, Jenny. That's the phrase I'm seeing. Healing is coming in the name of Jesus. We speak it over you. We speak it into being. We break the power of this affliction that's held you. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke it and command it to leave you. We pronounce kingdom healing. Shalom, shalom. Speak order over your body and I break disorder. In the name of Jesus. Let it be, Lord. Thank you, Father. More, Lord. More, Lord. Right now, unblock her body. Unblock and let it flow in the name of Jesus. Yes, Thank Lord. you, Father. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Refreshing and renewal. God's doing a new thing and it's springing up now. Just the impression I'm having, those of you who know 
that you need a genuine refreshing and renewal of the spirit. I want you to stand. If you know that you need a refreshing, a genuine refreshing and renewal. <laughs> Sounds like it's all of you. I, I thought Cape Town was very spiritual. We always need it. <laughs> Cape Town is thirsty, eh? Maybe this is prophetic and symbolic. The dams are 80% full, but Lord, let the rain come. Hold out your hands. I bless you in the name of Jesus with a refreshing of the Holy Spirit. Let the renewal and the refreshing of the Holy Spirit spring up like a well from your innermost being. Spring up, O well. Come, river of life. Just bubble up, fountain of God, from your belly. In the name of Jesus, let it come. More, let it come. Let the river flow. Let the river flow. In the name of Jesus. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Bring that refreshing, that renewal. I rebuke heaviness. I rebuke darkness. I rebuke negativity. In the name of Jesus. Where the devil has discouraged you. I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. I speak freedom in the name of Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Let it flow. Let it flow with power. With joy. Break open what's been held back here. Break open Lord. Let the river flow. Let the rain come. Let the rain come. In Jesus name. In Jesus name. Hallelujah. More, more. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. More. Yes, more. Let us power flow. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. <laughs> this is good. This is good. The gentle. But powerful spirit of Jesus upon you. The gentle but powerful spirit of Jesus is upon you. More Lord. Thank you Father. Thank you Father. Yes Lord. It's getting hot. Some are feeling heat. Yes Lord. In the name of Jesus. God's going to break open the way before you kneel. God is going to break open the way before you. There's been a sense of being hedged in. But God's going to open up stuff. Break open stuff. Take you to a new and larger place. That's open and freer. In the name of Jesus. It's almost like a bird that's going to come out of the cage and fly. God... God made you to fly. God wants you to fly. You've been held back. Whatever it is in the name of Jesus, we just unlock it and open it up. And we say, come out and be whom God is making you to be. In the name of Jesus, let it be. Thank you, Father. Yes, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord. so much Lord. Mm. Praise you God. Praise you God. 
praise you. compassion. God has mercy. God will restore what the enemy has taken. God will give back a hundredfold. God knows what you've been through. God sees what has happened. God weeps when you weep. He is he has not abandoned you. He's with you. I bless what he's doing right now of healing you in the name of Jesus. I break the shame. I break the sense of shame over your body over your mind in the name of Jesus. God cleanses you with the blood of the Son. He washes you with the blood of the Son. And break the shame in the name of Jesus. Let the shame come out in Jesus' name. Yes, let it go. Let it go. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. We take it out from the roots in the name of Jesus. Come out. Go in the name of Jesus. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. He washes you clean. He washes you clean. And He lifts the shame off you in the name of Jesus. He makes you new. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. God is going to make you a new creation. You are free. I pronounce you free from this in the name of Jesus. It will no longer hold you. It will no longer condemn you. It will no longer drive you. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Pastors always have to be ready. With tissues in the heart. There's a tissue. Thank you, Father. <laughs> this is this, this is fun. God's doing stuff. What's the name of your wife? Molly, I bless you. The power of God's all over you. In the name of Jesus. I bless your body. Do you suffer with pain in your body? Arthritis? Or or what's the cause of the pain? I just, I see pain, and in the name of Jesus, Marlene, I bless you. From your head, let the power of the Holy Spirit flow right now through your body. In the name of Jesus, like a warm lamp, let it pass through your body right down to your feet. And I speak to your blood circulation. I say, blood circulate. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke that pain, and I speak healing to your legs, healing to your ankles, healing to your feet. In the name of Jesus Christ. When you sleep tonight, receive the healing of Jesus through your whole body. I say shalom to your body. I speak harmony and order. And I break this order in your body. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father.